This is Nemeth State Hoka for NAJM Catalyst. I am speaking today with Dr. Rebecca Weintraub, faculty at Ariadne Lab and Harvard Medical School. At Ariadne, Rebecca leads both the Better Evidence Program and the Vaccine Delivery Portfolio. Ariadne Labs is a healthcare innovation center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, whose mission is to reduce suffering globally through the design of scalable solutions to improve healthcare delivery. During the early days of the pandemic, Ariadne Labs, which in full disclosure, I work with also, was called upon to help understand effective public health measures and create and disseminate new tools to support prevention and treatment. Rebecca, you were one of the first to sound the alarm about the dangers of vaccine nationalism and the need for equitable distribution. You and your team have been leading the last efforts to ensure safe, equitable, and accessible vaccinations. It is a milestone moment for sure, and we thank you for joining us today. Many thanks for having me. We have been now vaccinating for you know, almost two months and hearing about both the successes and the challenges. Let's start with the successes. Uh, what have been, been some of the, the successes as it relates to, uh, to vaccinations? Well, wonderful. So I want to just take a step back for a moment when we think about vaccine to vaccination. This has required success and inputs at the discovery. How do we actually produce a new vaccine in the midst of the pandemic? How do we then develop millions, now billions of doses? And then the delivery, moving the actual product into shots and arms and to begin the generation of immunity in a population. And just to start with discovery, which you know we all acknowledge, but just to say it out loud, the time to approval of a new vaccine when SARS-CoV-2 is sequenced on January 10th, and then the FDA had an external review of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine on December 10th, and the next day vaccinating healthcare providers in the UK and the United States. So that is an absolute accomplishment. The second is actually on the development side. So if we think of how do we start manufacturing a brand new vaccine, mRNA vaccines that we haven't manufactured in millions of doses before. And the CMOs, the manufacturing capacity that's been established around the world is now self-organizing. So for example, two weeks ago, Novartis decided to add its manufacturing capacity to make mRNA vaccines. Sanofi's already committed to fill and finish the mRNA vaccine and Merck and others. And so we also just acknowledge there's now voluntary horizontal collaboration across our pharma stakeholders. And on the delivery side, very early on in the pandemic, Seth Berkeley and others began the establishment of the COVAX facility, which is now prepared to distribute 330 million doses to developing nations in the first half of this calendar year. That is indeed remarkable. What have been some of the challenges and the gaps as you're seeing them? Well, we have to acknowledge we're on a learning curve here. I think of this almost like a bullwhip between supply and demand. The supply has been difficult to predict. We, the early press releases from December were talking about 50, 100 million doses that would be available when they were in the single digits. The demand forecasting, how much vaccine will ship where and when. The second is the actual supply chain management. So the distribution networks needed to monitor for the new bottleneck quality assurance and adverse surveillance. And all four of these systems needed to be created in the midst of a pandemic on, in a sense, chronically underfunded public health infrastructure. 
we have always known that public-private partnerships are a critical success factor to improving health for populations and communities, especially now during the pandemic. Can you share with us, Rebecca, some examples of countries or states where these public-private partnerships are working particularly well right now and why? Uh, absolutely. So I'll highlight a few states, West Virginia, Louisiana, Connecticut, and Kentucky. So West Virginia, early on, decided to use technology from a company called Everbridge, which allowed West Virginia officials to communicate with people instantly, alerting them if there was leftover vaccine doses. They identified where the people were who needed to be vaccinated so they could actually set the sign up based on their principles of prioritization. Second, they actually set up community vaccine clinics in all 55 counties. They summoned the National Guard to help with the logistics. And as of today, the state of West Virginia has a 108.1% administration rate. So they've been able to get more doses per vial and provide every vaccine dose that they've been allocated. A tremendous effort across the state. Connecticut um, <clears throat> thought about how do we simplify the process? So in December, the Department of Public Health expanded the pool of medical workers eligible to administer the vaccine, including EMTs, dental workers, veterinarians, and podiatrists. And they also developed a just-in-time inventory system to think about how do I use the unused doses and transfer to other facilities at the end of the day. Kentucky created a partnership with Broadbent Arena, which is actually a truck rally uh, site and they were able, they're now administering about 1,500 doses a day. They're staffed by volunteers. Um, actually, 4,000 people signed up to volunteers, and they create an incentive. If you volunteered for 40 hours, you'd be eligible for the leftover vaccine. And the fourth example I wanted to mention is Louisiana. So in Louisiana, the public health department was a very early adopter of using a vulnerability index to redeploy vaccines to those counties that experienced the most devastating effects of COVID-19, both in their health and economic outcomes. And so then they asked retail pharmacy chains and others to redeploy and reopen sites to serve those communities, including the retail pharmacy program that will begin on February 11th. Globally, many have called out how Israel has been able to respond in the midst of the pandemic. They've truly treated this like a bioterrorism event, not a routine vaccination campaign. Of note, Israel did pay a premium. They locked up an early supply of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, and they actually struck a unique deal. They actually said, please give us, give us the vaccines. We'll give you the national data to study whether herd immunity is achieved after reaching a certain percentage of vaccination coverage in Israel. There's an unusual setting here. This is a relatively small sized country and every Israeli citizen and resident belongs to one of the four HMOs where you can then get access to a full repository of digital health records. That is remarkable. I have to ask, how do you get to 108% administration rate? <laughs> yeah, so that's a great point to so remember each state was allocated doses per adult population. And the assumption was you would get five doses per vial. But it turns out if you lose a 
low dead weight syringe, you can get an additional one, sometimes two additional doses per vial. And that wasn't counted against you. So they were able to administer more doses than the vials that they had available. That's correct, exactly. So for example, if the state of West Virginia received 10,000 doses and those vials actually had 10,100 doses, <laughs> and they administered all of them, then they're actually exceeding their allocation by the efficiency of being able to extract additional doses per vial. And actually, an aside here, which is qu uh, quite interesting, is that Operation Warp Speed paid, is paying Pfizer and Moderna per dose, not per vial. So Pfizer then de decided, because of that, because people are able to get additional doses per vial, to send this specialized syringe with the doses so that you could extract additional doses per vial and then send fewer vials for each shipment. And get paid for that extra dose. They actually decrease the number of vials that they would then ship. So take, take a step back here is that when Pfizer and Moderna contracted with Operation Workspeed, they made an assumption that they would get X number of doses per vial. And in reality, with pharmacists utilizing different syringes, additional doses were able to get extracted from the vial. And after a few weeks of deployment, that data went back up to Operation Warp Speed and then Pfizer renegotiated with op Operation Warp Speed to say, there's additional doses per vial, so we are going to send you the specialized syringe to get that additional dose out of each vial. And remember, the, the operation work is paying per dose, not per vial. Why I mention this is because this creates a new delivery bottleneck. The syringe companies were not ready to actually manufacture this type of syringe at mass. So wow. as Pfizer makes this different choice, we now have a new implementation bottleneck that will be resolved in the coming weeks. Always learning. Let me bring us back up a couple of notches. Given where we are today with the systems that we have now, what are two or three tactics that both health systems and their public health partners can execute on now to accelerate and amplify vaccination efforts? That, that is a great question. I have to say there's been a host of agile, adaptable leaders today who are just wonderful examples. And the bottleneck right now is adaptive scheduling systems. So an individual comes, goes to their state site, they wanna know the next available appointment. Sometimes people are agnostic, they'll go anywhere, they'll travel. Or other folks, unfortunately, are homebound or transportation would be quite difficult. So deploying at a state level, an adaptive scheduling system is truly a bottleneck today. Compliments to all the software companies that have offered their services. We wish we had you on board months ago <laughs> to help prepare the state as such. The second is a centralized dashboard for every state to really have that real-time data on equitable distribution. So once again, you realize there's a lag in data reporting at every step in this process, which makes it difficult on a weekly basis for the state to think through replenishment, opening up new sites, setting expectation by opening up new appointments. I believe it's going to get better. We have to acknowledge that this is a decentralized system to begin with. And even for routine flu administration, the minority of flu shots 
are actually reported into the state central registry. And then last, I think, is truly preparing our last mile delivery channel. We are now in a low supply, high demand part of the curve. But I suspect by early spring, we're going to be in a high supply, low demand part of the curve where we truly need our last mile delivery channels, your primary care provider, for example, your local pharmacist, your local provider to have access to the vaccine to give it to you in the midst of routine care. Are there immediate things that we can be doing in the next few months, in addition to the, the suggestions that you made or recommendations that you've made to help us close that last mile, most cross that last mm. mile most effectively? That's a, that's a great question. I'm quite optimistic with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine being both thermostable and one dose, maybe a very viable vaccine to be able to administer at, for example, a local primary care practice with a low volume of patients. So first I think, you know, how do we help primary care providers who want to administer the vaccine to integrate this within their routine care to help actually reestablish care for those they may have not been able to see in the early months of the pandemic, and, and obviously the lag we're facing regarding other aspects of preventative health for the general population. And then the second, I think, is in a sense, some of these data lags and thinking about how do we have other sentinel data and routine data that we need to help prepare week by week for the vaccine deployment. I'll have to say, just even in the early days of the, of the Biden administration, they've done just a tremendous job in four categories to help understand what the states need. First, expanding eligibility for the vaccine, creating federal vaccination sites, they've bolstered the public health workforce, and they've secured the production for sufficient supply for spring 2021. What is a recent win that you can share with us from your own experience from the last few weeks? Um, well, first, I have to say, it's been an absolute honor to learn and support and listen to the state leaders that are leading these efforts. Our state public health departments have been beleaguered by the pandemic and undercrustly underfunded, and now have had to shoulder this burden of being the established voice for shelter in place, masking, testing, closing schools, understanding workplace and transportation protections, and now obviously deploying a scarce resource, maybe a vaccine uh, to their communities. So the agility of these state leaders who've asked for help, who are utilizing tools that our team and many other teams have established has been tremendous. The second I have to say is there's been a tremendous interest in developing trust and empathy during this time. So our team worked on a tool called the Vaccine Allocation Planner, and then worked with media companies, including the New York Times, to build something called Find Your Place in the Vaccine Line. And that moment in December, when we knew doses would be coming to the state, there was an overwhelming response and understanding that I understand I am further back in the line, but I am protecting the person in front of me. And that is the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans want to end this pandemic. They want to protect their elder who's at risk of death and decrease their risk of transmitting to their community members. Ending on that positive note, Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking with NEJM Catalyst today. Many thanks for having me.